Grant and I had talked about doing something like this. Uh, Mark and I were talking about it as well, and we came to the decision to, to do parenting. And part of that is just from conversations that Grant and I have had that uh, turns out we share the same passion for parenting. We've used some of the same materials raising our kids and, and done some of the same things, so we discovered a, a joy and, and a commonality there. He's had a passion for parenting for 30 years, and uh, I can tell you as a witness that he loves his wife, he loves his children, he loves his grandchildren, and um, has a lot of wisdom to offer to us. And I, I know that um, when I was a new parent, when Sylvia and I were new parents, there were some families who stepped into our lives, a couple of seminars we went to like this, that just absolutely revolutionized our thinking and our understanding. And so this is, this is the discipleship process. This is don't reinvent the wheel. Don't get to the end of your time as a parent and go, gee, I wish I had known this before. And so um, I'm really looking forward to this. We've, we've shared a lot of good conversations together. So Grant, come visit with us and help us out. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and I am excited for this weekend as well to see uh, what God will do and, and uh, what we're going to learn collectively together through this. I'm looking forward to Steve's uh, comments as well tomorrow, so make sure you make time for that tomorrow. I think it's going to be just a, a time of rejoicing and a good time of fellowship as well. Well, what are your goals in being here today? I mean, we, we offered a parenting seminar. It's coming up, and, uh, and each of you came with different goals and different purposes um, and as you have young kids, I look around and I know most of you and, and know your kids' ages. They're a little bit older, some of them. Some of them are younger. And uh, I know my very first parenting class that I went to, I was frustrated. I thought it would be so easy to raise perfect kids. I mean, what's so hard about this? Uh, they would always do exactly what I told them. I'd give them a command. They'd do it right away. My slightest little whim, they would take care of it. I thought, this has got to be so easy going into it. Well, that was all blown out of water within the first two days of bringing our first newborn home, I think. Uh, within a few weeks, it was getting old. And after a few months, I was getting frustrated. Uh, the frustration kept building and building. Wait a minute. You know, this isn't what I expected. To make my child go to sleep, I would take him, put him in a car seat and put him in the car and drive him around the block till he went to sleep. As soon as I get him out to put him into his crib, he'd wake up. That didn't work well. So I kept doing that. Finally, I figured out the washing machine. I could put his car seat on the washing machine. He would go to sleep. And that solved my problem. Where was I going with all this? It was, it was kind of crazy. I was a Christian. I loved God. And I knew his word somewhat. So why wasn't it all coming together? Why wasn't it what all I expected it to be? I was getting irritable. You can ask my wife. I probably was very much. Who would I turn to for advice? I didn't really know. Thankfully, though, my wife and I were directed to a parenting class very early on. And uh, I was about 30 years ago, and it pointed us to Scripture as the answer. And uh, that's really what I'm here for tonight, is to try and help you with some of the tools that I was given, that Kathy and I have used over the years. Um, what, it is, what is it? Far more important, far more important than our sanity, than our... Uh, Raising well-respectable kids, well-behaved kids that don't embarrass us. We learned that our children need to understand sin and to reach for the only hope they have in a Savior. And that's what parenting really your job is about. Some of you are here maybe because you want to help other parents along the way. Uh, 
Um, or maybe you're just starting to have your first child. You don't even have one yet, and you're looking at this and, oh, man, this thing's exciting. Where are we going here? Um, Steve, I know, encouraged us on Sundays to, to come to this, even if you don't have kids or your kids are grown, to be here, to be part of this body together collectively so we're all on the same page doing the same thing, the same purpose, the same goals, the same mindset, the same worldview, really to build a community here that our children can thrive in. That's one of the goals we're after here. Your parenting goal cannot simply be well-behaved children, peace, and serenity in your house. That cannot be your goal. It must ultimately be a goal of giving glory to God through the next generation and subsequent generations thereafter. That's what we're trying to do. We can't expect to change all your children's behavior in, uh, in one weekend session here. I know I read a book one time, How to Have a New Kid by Friday, and uh, it's a great hope, a great dream to be able to do that. Uh, it took years and years to train that behavior into them. It's not going to happen in a week to get, to get that out of them. It's going to take a lot of effort, a lot of prayer to change their hearts. We're all born with a sin nature, and that automatically draws us to rebel against God. So let's start with a, a biblical foundation for parenting. We, we need to start on a biblical foundation about this, and this will kind of build for the next couple sessions that we're going to have here. Some basic foundational scriptures about parenting. The first one, number one, is to be teachable. I'm sorry, to be teachable here. The Psalms and Proverbs are filled with verses where the psalmist asks to be taught. Psalm 25, 4 and 5 says, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. That's what the psalmist was asking. Psalm 86, 11, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. There's a correlation there, teaching and learning, teaching and learning. God, we need this. Psalm 119 has the word teach in it nine times. So it's something important that uh, we need to be taught. John 14, 26 Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples about his death that's coming, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So there's a teaching process that happens in our lives, and we need to be prepared for that as parents. So many parents, I say this because they are not teachable. Especially in this age, I can just look it up online. I want to know something about this, I'll just look. I can do it myself. I don't need all these other inputs. Or they have so many massive amounts of inputs that are now available to them, they, they are not teachable. You must be teachable in the area of parenting. You're going to wrestle with a pattern that you were taught by your parents. For some of you, this may be very difficult. Uh, perhaps you had a very difficult childhood, and, and you don't want to be like that. Maybe you're going to be parenting in, in response to unresolved childhood fears and conflicts and disappointments you had as a child. But those patterns are now driving your actions in the parenting process. Um, following the same direction, maybe, because you thought, hey, I turned out okay. I didn't turn out that bad, so I'm going to follow this direction. Or maybe the polar opposite, because you said, I don't want to be like that. Between you and your spouse, this is going to bring a lot of conflict. You know, do you let them do this? Do you let them do that? Do you not? So there's going to be a lot of conflict there, and I'm sure you've experienced that. It's going to take biblical balance. You may not have even considered what the Bible says about implementing a biblical worldview into your life, into this process. I know at, at our church here, we've tried to impart those, those principles to you. 
Others of you, maybe you have, like a lot of you, you have a good godly heritage. You've been raised in a good Christian home. You have a lot of good godly principles there. It was maybe modeled for you as children in your home, and therefore you're just looking for some tune-ups. Say, how can I get this better? In both accounts, either end of the spectrum, you must be teachable to what the Scripture says in regards to the issues of parenting as you raise your children. Number two, principle number two is be searching. Be searching. It's your duty as parents to be searching the Bible regularly for wisdom, both for life and for parenting. That's your duty. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. There's a purpose in that. All of that scripture, we have to take that and we have to be searching in scripture to find the principles. I know as a parent, it's real easy to just get so busy. You're changing diapers and you're having to correct things and you're having to clean up messes. And it's easy just to not stop to take the time to look into scripture to what it says. Wisdom comes from knowledge properly applied. That's what you have to do is properly apply the wisdom that's in there. It's your duty to learn from scripture. And you'll find there's two different ways of learning. One is in the Hebrew mind and the other is in a Greek mind. In the Hebrew mind, rather, let me just start with the Greeks. They held the views because they formulated and reasoned them in their heads. They kind of thought about things, okay, and this is how it should be. The Hebrews, on the other hand, they believed things because they did it with their hands. They physically went and did things and therefore they knew how they worked. Regarding raising children, they began with a biblical foundation... And followed what they felt that God had instructed. Because God had provided instructions for them from the time of Moses and, and, and past that time. So they followed that. The Greeks, though, they would postulate the outcomes based upon this. This is what the outcome would be. And from that, they would build their systems of belief and the results. Christian Overman, in his book, Assumptions That Affect Our Lives, he wrote this. He said, here then is the basic difference between the Hebraic view of truth and the Greek view. The Greeks based their culture upon the assumption that human reason was a sufficient starting point for determining truth, measuring values, and molding morality, while the Hebrews based their culture upon the assumption that divine revelation was the only sufficient starting point for such things. There's a huge gap between those two. Worldly wisdom and man's wisdom. A great verse to add to this is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. That will help you to be searching scripture. Look for those ways that God can guide your paths. Number three is uh, be aware. Be aware. Colossians 2, 8, and 9 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. We've got to beware of that. The word beware, there's to be on guard. It, it speaks of robbery. There's robbery coming. You're going to get robbed. If you knew somebody was coming into your house to rob you, man, you'd be ready with your gun, wouldn't you, at all times? Well, this is the way it is with the philosophies of men. Beware lest any man spoil you through the philosophies of man. They're out there. Satan wants to do that. And the word spoil, you'd be spoiled. It's not a rottenness like spoiled fruit, but it's to take captive. Satan wants to take your mind captive, and he is doing it in droves with Christians nowadays, where he's just putting other things in front of them other than the truth of the gospel. Philosophy. 
That's literally the love of wisdom. And that involves more than just an academic uh, discipline, but it describes really the theory about God, the world, the meaning of life. It's a worldview is really what that speaks to. That's the philosophy of the world, the worldview that's going to get in there and, and take over us if we're not careful. We have to be aware of these things. This is where the, we see the differences in biblical worldview and other worldviews. It's, it's really easy to spot that. Be watching for parenting philosophies that are not in agreement with Scripture. There are literally thousands of books and articles and magazines written about parenting issues annually. Most of them, almost all of them, contradict the Word of God. You've got to watch that. That's even within the church. There's a lot of humanistic philosophy that's sugar-coated with some Scripture, but the principles do not line up with the totality of Scripture. We have to be aware. We have to be knowing Scripture. We have to be doing all these things to, to know this ahead of time. You've probably heard the ads on the radio recently. Get the total transformation system. Are you having trouble with your kids obeying you? Just say these simple words. We guarantee within this tape series you listen to, it's just like magic. Call 1-800, and you're going to get all the answers to be able to parent and fix any behavior in your child. That's not the way it is. That's the world's philosophies you hear up there. If you had a problem, and you went to turn to one of your neighbors to help you, and on one side of you, maybe one neighbor was a... A guy who was a, a psychiatrist with children. He really knew children well. In fact, he had spent his whole life, he had a Ph.D. in child psychology. And this guy had known all kinds of stuff on parenting. But his kids, you watch them, and you don't want your kids turning out like that. You see you know, what they're doing, the choices they're making. But then on the other hand, right on the other side, is maybe a guy who works in the oil field. And you look at his family, he's got the same number of kids, and he's struggling, but his kids seem content and happy. You don't hear yelling and screaming. You see obedient, a lot of obedience there. Which one would you typically gravitate towards for information on parenting? A lot of times we would go, well, this guy has the degrees. He must know about it. No, that's, we need to be aware of those philosophies. The underlining philosophies would drive people here. Number four, be consistent. Be consistent. Parenting isn't easy. Being lazy sure is. You're going to need to keep a steady course for years and years and years to come. It's a long process to get through that parenting. And and sometimes you wonder, is this ever going to sink into my kids? You're in it for the long haul. You know, this isn't just for a short bit. This is not just till they turn 18 or they move away. Our goal is based on a long-term relationship with our children. We want to be lifelong friends with theirs eventually. As they mature in adulthood, we want them to challenge us spiritually. So you need to be consistent. You need to keep that going and not stop. It's a long time. Isaiah 40, 29 says, He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Sometimes you just got to rely on a verse like that, don't you? Just, you know what, I need help. This is, this is hard work, and you're tired, and you've changed 52 diapers that day because you got so many kids, and, and there's just clothes piled up, and God help me. We know. We've been there, and it's, it's not easy. But it's about you, isn't it? Chip Ingram said, you must be what you want them to become. So we have to be that. Parenting, though, is a husband-wife commitment. It's not... Dear, take care of the kids, and I'm going to just, I'll provide for us. I'll give us money to to live off of. Um, No, it's a parenting commitment, both husband and wife on the same page. Um, Even with single parents, they can still do it. You can still do it if you're a single parent. It's a bit handicapped, but God still can prove himself faithful if you're faithful to his principles. You can produce God-fearing offspring. So be consistent. Principle number five is to be goal-oriented. Catch that one? Be goal-oriented. 
You should set goals for your children's behavior in terms of moral response, but also in relation to their desire for God. You want to have them have creating that desire. And Kathy and I, I know we set early on a goal of our children be of a greater impact to the kingdom of God than us. And it's real rewarding to watch them and making choices. And wow, they didn't get that from us. Something must have, somebody must have parented them when we weren't for them to turn out this way. We need to show them that their greatest need is for a Savior and then point them to Jesus Christ. That's, that's where we have to start. Our top priority, therefore, is to be an evangelist in the home, isn't it? We have to bring them to that point where they understand fully the gospel. Proverbs 20.11 says, Even a child is known by his doings, whether his works be pure and whether it be right. You know, all of our children are known by God what's going on. How many third-generation Christians do you know, you know, where the parents were saved, they had kids, and they followed after Christ, the next generation followed after Christ? There's not many of them, guys. It really is, it's become a lost breed. That's really unfortunate that that's happened. Are you after your child's happiness or are you after your holiness? And sometimes we sacrifice one for the other. This whole process, being goal-oriented, we have to have spiritual goals for them, not just for them to be happy, but for them to be holy. Parenting, as, as Steve read, it's to be a joy and not a burden. It is a joy to have them. Psalm 127, 3 through 5. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the, room, of the womb is a reward. And that's the joy that we have. It's so sad to see parents who don't have those goals and they just are trying to get through parenting. I just can't wait till they turn 18. And they've got this problem and that problem with them. And uh, they're not joyous. They don't have joy in their heart because... It's the joy of the Lord they should have because they're pursuing godliness there. Principle number six is be like-minded. Be like-minded. Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. The companion of fools will be destroyed. You don't want that to be your kids. So find like-minded parents and encourage one another. And that's why I think this community we have called church is really a great place to nurture that. So that you know if your kids go over to somebody else's house, they're on the same principles. They're on the same pathway. They have the same ideals and the same perspective to Christ and to the kingdom that you do. That's the way it should be that can really help them along. Do they have the same parenting standards that you do, the kids, ones that your kids spend time with? Challenge each other with this, uh, the principles of Scripture. This is a great place to do it. You need to be careful, though, on how much time your kids do spend with those who constantly berate your different parenting practices because they can exactly do the opposite. You may find very well that the, that the world or sometimes even the church may be saying the opposite things to what Scripture says in parenting. And so they go off to school and you have to be prepared. I'm not saying you know, don't let your kids out in the world, but if you are letting them out, you have to create that balance uh, and the like-mindedness is often a way to do that. So be, be like-minded. Principle number seven, be faithful. Be faithful. There's going to be times when you doubt yourself while you're trying to follow through with a course of action. You're saying, man, I'm not sure this is working, man. This, is, this just doesn't seem to be getting through. You're going to wonder if they're ever going to get it right. And, hey, I've been one of those. I've come home, and I've found my kids sitting on the front porch with a for sale sign on them before. I know what that's like, where my wife's had one of those days where, you know, this is just, I can't handle it anymore. It's so much harder to work on the heart than it is on their outward behavior. So that's what we're getting to, is their heart. 
God's faithful to his word, but he's under no obligation to extend grace to parents who fail to follow it. Let me repeat that. God's faithful to his word, but is under no obligation to extend grace to parents who fail to follow it. We, we have to follow his word. Hosea 4, 6. This is a scary verse. Read this to you. It's like, whoa, this is, this is something here. Hosea 4, 6 says, Seeing thou have forgotten the law of God, I will also forget your children. Ooh, wow. Do you want that to happen? That's, that's scary. And think of all the parents that probably has come true for them. You can't plant a whole crop full of weeds and then pray for crop failure, expecting wheat to come up or some other thing. You've, you've planted the weeds. That's what's going to come up. So you have to be very faithful long term. Principle number eight is to be honest. Be honest. Never be afraid to admit when you've made a mistake. And this, I probably failed at this. I didn't do this enough. Your honesty to God and to your children is going to be one of the greatest factors into their learning process and for your learning process. And uh, I'll admit, I've made a lot of mistakes, and I've had to ask forgiveness from my kids. I should have probably a lot more. You know, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me for this? So, you know, either I discipline them when I shouldn't, or I maybe allowed them to make a decision that I probably shouldn't have even allowed them to do it. You need to model all aspects of character to them. And asking forgiveness, being honest with them, is a great characteristic to model. Proverbs 22.17 says, Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to knowledge. That's what we need to do. Jeremiah 9.23 and 24, Let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That's where we need to do our, our honest thing. Are we really at a point where we can boast what God's done in our lives? So there's your eight foundational principles. Be teachable, be searching, be aware, be consistent, be goal-oriented, be like-minded, be faithful, and be honest. So if we're all in agreement that we need to work on the child's heart, then we need to look at what Scripture says about the heart. What is it? How does it work? And that's really to understand getting to the heart of behavior. And these are some concepts that are taught by Ted Tripp in, in his series, Shepherding a Child's Heart. It's kind of the foundation for the parenting class that we teach. And uh, just why reinvent the wheel, as Steve said, and some good stuff in here. First thing he says is all behavior is heart-driven. All behavior is heart-driven. We don't take any actions without the heart being a part of it. Our heart is always a part of it. And there's three main operations of the heart that occur, that go on. The first... The heart is part of it is the mind. This is your mind that is at work here. It's your thoughts. It's your beliefs. It's your understanding. It's your memory and your judgment of things. Discernment. It's, it's your conscience. It's all tied up in the mind because the mind is thinking as you're uh, dealing with things right in front of you. So we need to train that part of our child's heart is the mind. The second is the affections. That's the longings, the desires, the feelings, even the imaginations. You realize that? Your imaginations are part of what your heart is saying. As you dream at night, that has something to do with your heart and where your heart is at. And the third part is your will. Your will, that's choosing and determining the actions that you're going to take. You can choose whether you're going to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or a ham and cheese sandwich or chocolate ice cream, vanilla ice cream. You can choose to sin, to not to sin. All those are choices, and that is part of the will that is up there that's doing all this. So we live out of our hearts, which is our mind, our affections, and our will. Luke, 22, Luke 6, 44 and 45 says, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man, evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, his 
overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. So it's out of the overflow of our heart, out of that is what we say and what we do. That is a process that occurs. It, it just comes right out of our heart. Everything that we say and we do comes out of our hearts. To reinforce that, Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. It's the wellspring. This is where all the fresh water comes from. Everything that's driven within us, it comes from our hearts. Let me read Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. This is a passage that you should have marked as a key verse in your Bible regarding parenting. This is where you should live with parenting because it really says so much. And uh, it first says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. This is the Shema, the great Shema that the Israelites would teach all of their children. They would say this morning, noon, and night, many different times throughout the day. Children is probably the first thing they learned to say, Mommy, Daddy, and then the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you this day shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as signs on your hands, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Everywhere scripture should be is what it says. Well, but it says that your heart. Look a little closer. Let me repeat that again. And these words I command you this day shall be on your heart. Stop right there. Shall be on your heart. First thing, it has to be on your heart. We have to look at ourselves first. It has to be in our heart first. Then we can take the message to our children. Then the message of the gospel can go out to our children. So then, if we do that, if it's in our hearts, then we can teach it diligently to our children as we walk and as we sit and as we stand. All the different times of life, every single process we're doing, it's not only when they've been bad, they've done something that they're going to get in trouble for, and now, up, oh, let's take the gospel and pound it into them. No, that's not parenting. Parenting is the whole process, or at least godly parenting. It's everything you're doing in life is when you're bringing this to them. Scripture says this. Scripture says that. We have to first have it in our hearts. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So it's the heart is what God's after, and that's what it is with our kids. The previous copy, the very first copy we saw of uh, Ted Tripp's series on uh, shepherding a child's heart, the... uh, the video series must have been done in the mid-80s. He has this big handlebar mustache, and the women have the poofy sleeves, and, and you look at this thing, and he's got this microphone that has a wire dripping down, and he's kind of tripping over it half the time, writing on a chalkboard. And think, oh, my goodness, I can't watch this thing. This is, I, this is just really hard to watch. He got to this point, and I said, wait a minute. God looks on the heart, not the outside. And it just drove it home to me so quickly. You know what? This is exactly what we're talking about. It's, it's not the outward appearance of what I'm looking at in this video. It's the inward heart. It's the inward information I'm learning about my heart in this process. We focus on the physical appearance more, more than the outward man things. And we need to stop that. Do we spend more time on the outer things or on heart issues? We need to, we need to check ourselves here. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. 
Proverbs 22:15 says, Folly or foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. This is where all these things are. They're in the heart. That's where we need to look for them. The needs we have and the children, the needs that our children have, they are all heart needs. They're all driven from the heart. Christ gave a bunch of examples in this in Scripture. In uh, Matthew 6, that whole passage through there, he, he uses a bunch of different examples. Uh, he draws the boundaries of the heart. He says, you know, how far does the heart go? He says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And we can easily slip our heart over into those things, can't we? So it's the mind, it's the affection, it's the will, it's those decisions we make. That is what the heart is. But we have denials. We deny a lot of this, don't we? We deny the connection between our heart and our behavior. You know what? I did that. I was tired. You know, I was under a lot of pressure. It was a long day, and it, I just, it, I was really tired. That, just please excuse that, that whatever I did. Or that wasn't me. You know, that wasn't really me. That did. I, I'm so sorry. What we say when we're mad is probably closer to what we really are and what our, real, our heart really is. And so we have to look at that. Scriptures teach that we speak out of the overflow of our heart. Matthew 15, 8, the disciples were eating without doing the ceremonial washing. And the Pharisees came up to say, wait a minute, you can't do this. We're Jesus, you and your disciples, this is terrible. You're eating without doing all these ceremonies. Why is that? And he rightfully says to them, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Here they were worshiping, but their heart was not there, was not a part of it. The things that come out of the mouth are the things that come out of the heart. And we have to remember that with ourselves and with our kids. Mark 7, 20 to 23, evil comes from what is inside is basically what it says in there. We've got evil in there. Luke 6, 43 to 45. It says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart he speaks. Isn't that something? You know, that is really the crux of it. A good example, the way that uh, Ted explains this, is uh, very similar to, I, I grew up, my backyard was a garden. Just tons of trees and plants and every vegetable from uh, alfalfa to zucchini. I don't know, I just had everything in there. And we had an apple tree in there, so this is very vivid in my mind. Apple tree was there, and it was just eight years old and never had any fruit. Maybe little tiny things like this, just little tiny apples. And let's just say my mom said, Go out there and fix this apple. I want to see this apple tree fixed because it's been a long time. So get this apple tree producing apples. So, okay, Mom, I'll take care of that. Get on my bicycle, and I ride down to the store. There's my, there's my apple tree. I get down to the store, and uh, what I do, I go buy a bunch of apples, a whole box of them, and I bring them here, and I get a ladder and some monofilament line, and I tie them to the tree. I start tying one onto the branches. Oh, look, yeah, there's an apple. And, you know, I th- that that looked pretty good. You know, I'll put a, a couple more. So I put apples all over the tree. Man, that tree looks great. Look at that. Going to get my mom. Mom, got it all taken care of. Come out, look at the tree. She'd say, what in the world? You are an, what have I raised here? You know, you've got to be crazy. You think that that is going to solve it. What we need is true systemic growth. We need to get down to those roots. We need to dig it up. We need to put some fertilizer there. We need to water it. We need to take care of the aphids or whatever's on it. There's work that needs to be done there. We hang apples on the trees for our kids often. We do the exact same thing. Here's some examples. There's manipulations that we have. One would be maybe emotional appeal. 
You know, we, we can emotionally appeal to our kids to do certain things, or, or maybe we'll say, you know what, the kid does something wrong, he went and hit some other kid, and we tell him, go say you're sorry to him. He just stands there. No, no, I said, go say you're sorry. So he, we march him over there, we take him by the arm, and go say you're sorry. I said, I'm sorry. There, he said, I'm sorry, good, thank you, we've got to take him, see, he's sorry. What did we just do? He wasn't really sorry, was he? Or maybe rewards or bribes. You know what, if you're good today, when we get to the end of the, of the grocery store, we've got all our groceries, I'll let you pick something out at the, at the checkout stand. You, you can buy, we'll get you maybe some candy there. Or maybe we, we set up a chart where we get stickers for everything good that they've done. This is a, a carrot on the end of the stick. It's bribery. It's, it's trying to get them to do something because they're after the prize there. Or shame and guilt. After all I've done for you and you go and do this to me, oh my goodness. Or how could you have done that when daddy worked so hard to earn the money to pay for that and now you had to go and destroy it. You wrecked that thing. It makes me so sad when you do this. We're just shaming them. That's, that's not going to, yeah, they may change their behavior, but it's not going to get the, the right results. Or how about this one? Here's a great idea. The kids are saying shut up. And they don't quit saying shut up. We're having this problem with the kids saying shut up. So you know what? We'll get smart here. Every time you say shut up, you've got to put a dollar in the shut up jar. And we put the jar right there. Okay. Uh, said shut up. You've got to put your dollar in the jar. And that goes on until it stops. And you know what? When we get enough money, we're going to go out for ice cream. See? There's a value to this. So we're going to be quiet and not say shut up. And even dad, if I say shut up, I've got to put a dollar in there. What's wrong with this? We do stuff like this. It's so easy. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Wait a minute. It provides a false basis for ethics. They're after that party. They're after that candy bar. They're after whatever it is that you're making them feel bad. It trains their hearts to serve idols. There's an idol of selfishness out there. Whatever you use to constrain behavior also trains behavior. Whatever you use to train behavior trains the heart. So it's all tied together. So if you constrain their behavior or something, it's going to train their heart. Their heart is going to be seeking after those prizes, seeking after some other purpose to it. You need to train their heart properly. Changed behavior is not what we want. That's not what we're after. That's a byproduct of it. It won't point your children to Jesus, and that's what we need to do. Our desire is for them to know the living God, isn't it? That's where we want them to be, to know God's truths, to know his ways, to love him and to respond out of loving him. And because of that, going and loving others, that's what we want their heart to do. And we can't do it by having this little jar there or these stickers or these other things like that. Their need is for the gospel of Christ. And that's where the centrality of Christ has to be in our parenting process. We want them self-conscious inside. We want their inside to say, I long for Christ. I long for things that are righteous. Psalm 139 is just a great uh, passage on that, along with Psalm 26, too. It, it points to a Christ being the center. We need to be taking our kids to Christ. So you see how so much of parenting is about you. It's not about your child. It's training you. That's why we don't have your kids in here. Otherwise, we just bring your kids in. You could leave, and we could train them, and they'd be all, all set, right? Deuteronomy 6 got to first have it in your heart and then diligently train it to your kids. It has to be in your heart first. To properly understand our relationship as parents, though, let's go back a little bit further than Deuteronomy 6, and let's go into Genesis in our Bibles. Uh, way back in Genesis, we want to take a look at how God created families. Here's my apple tree. Uh-oh. There we go. Way back in Genesis, chapter 2, verse 7 to 17, 
It records how God created man and then placed him in the perfect garden. Here he was. He created him. Everything was perfect. And up to this time, God said it was good. It was good. Every day of creation, it was good. And that's great. This was good. That was good. Then in verse 18, we see the first negative in the Bible, the very first negative listed. It says, and the Lord said it was not good for man to be alone. God actually created man with a need. He created him with a need for something there. It was not good the way he created him. He created him with a need for something. God then went and paraded all the animals past him. He had them come past him, and they were all in pairs, male and female, male and female. And he's naming them and everything, and he's looking at those. And he just imagine Adam doing that, and he sees all these pairs, and he says, you know what? There's not one like me. He sees that example. There's not one. He created him and revealed to him there's a need for one like himself. He showed him that. Notice the dynamics of the relationship here. He first had a relationship with God, which was a vertical relationship. It was a vertical relationship where he looked up. God was clearly in charge. He created him. There was no question about it. This was all his realm. And what a great time that would have been to be alone with him. But it was a vertical relationship. You're God. I'm not. It's very clear. He also had a vertical relationship with the animals. There, they were below him. He was told to tend them, to care for them, and to name them. So they were below him. He had a vertical relationship. They were right there. Okay, there's the animals. We know who they are. But he didn't have a relationship with anybody who was on a par with him. He showed him that. Note in the Hebrew mind here, it says, and, and Moses wrote this passage in Hebrew, it didn't separate Adam's being. It didn't say just, you know, he physically had a problem. It was his entire body. He was alone spiritually. He was alone socially. He was alone emotionally. He was alone physically. He just didn't have that symbol, similar par relationship. He was alone and lacking an intimate relationship with one like himself. So God created a helper. It wasn't a subservient slave, who would, but one rather who would complement him, who would complete him. This one, he would be on the same horizontal relationship with his wife. He was on a horizontal relationship then God created Eve. He brought him to her in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22. So, so God was the one that created the need. He showed Adam his need. And then he showed Adam that he would be the one to fulfill his need. Pretty neat. God was his source for everything. From these verses, we can derive four quick principles here. Four principles. The very first relationship established in Scripture is the husband-wife relationship. It's the husband-wife relationship. It could have been any other relationship that he started. It could have been a father and son, kind of makes sense, father and son, and, or a mother-daughter, or you know, brother-sister, who knows. It could have been any type of relationship there, but God chose the husband-wife relationship. Think of other couples in the Bible, and God always, he, he, a lot of them, he calls them as couples, Abraham and Sarah, Aquila and Priscilla, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Ruth and Boaz. There's, there's a purpose for each one of them that played and complemented each other. So very first relationship established in Scripture is the husband-wife relationship. Number two, the husband-wife relationship is primary. It's primary in all networks of relationships. Just as the creation order had a process where each day was dependent on the other, you had to have the light for the photosynthesis and, and all those things that occurred there, all relationships are dependent upon the primary relationship here. You're never going to be a better father than you are a husband. You're never going to be a better mom than you are a wife. 
much of a child's security is dependent upon the way his mother and father interact with each other. That relationship is key. When he sees them love each other, it makes him feel more secure. God designed it that way. So the husband-wife relationship should be the primary relationship. Number three, outside of your relationship with God, the husband-wife relationship should be viewed as the priority relationship within the family. Outside of your relationship with God, the husband-wife relationship must be viewed as a priority relationship in the family. I had heard it said by, a, I think it was a nurse that mentioned this to me, that uh, the body, when, it goes, when you go on a fast, you don't eat or drink for a number of days, the body kind of starts to shut itself down after a certain period of time. And what happens is it takes all the nutrients and it feeds them to only just a couple organs, less and less until it gets to the head and the heart. It shuts everything down. The last two is the head and the heart because it wants to make sure that those survive. It's the same way in the parenting relationship. When all things start falling apart in your family, that's what it goes back towards. All the energy has to go back to that husband-wife relationship. It is the priority. So how do you demonstrate this to your kids? How do you demonstrate okay. Kids, mom and dad, we're the priority here. No, that's not the way we do it or and whatever. There's some vehicles you can use. And, and I created a couple. These are not in scripture. But uh, when I come home from work, my first kiss goes to my wife. It's been that way forever. And I've got four daughters. And, man, that's, that's hard to resist. Four cute little girls running around. And, and, and they want to come, daddy, daddy. Nope, you've got to wait. Mommy gets the first kiss. Oh, but they love it, actually, because it helped them see that mom was important to me to me, greater than them. I'd pick them up, maybe say, hi, good, set you aside. Maybe it was their birthday or something. I'd sneak something in on them, but just don't tell mom. But uh, another way is just we demonstrate by driving. Mom and dad in the front seat and the kids in the back seat. We didn't put dad in the front and mom and the kids in the back. But that demonstrates that, kid, you're more important than mom because they need to see that demonstrate in front of them talking and spending times together. Another thing is, is the way we reflect our view of marriage. I know I fell into this trap when I was first married. I love to joke. If you've gotten to know me outside of some circles, you'll find out I actually am a joker. And uh, I love to make jokes. And I would make jokes about marriage. And, and they were funny. I'm not going to say them because I get trouble every time I say them. But uh, I would say these jokes, and my wife would just get so mad at me. You know what? You can't say that about marriage. I didn't believe it, but I was degrading the value of marriage. I didn't realize how much that hurt her until we finally talked about it. So don't do that. That puts, lets the children see that you value that relationship. It's a priority relationship. How we speak to our, about our spouse to others is also a key element. Oh, yeah, my husband did this or my wife did that. No, we can't do that. How we respect our spouse is important. Whether we share our problems with our spouse with our parents. Guys, that can get you into big trouble. No, stay away from that stuff. Or maybe with our friends first. Rather than resolving them with your marriage partner, going to that person and resolving it rather than sharing it outside there. Those are ways that we don't put our spouse as the priority relationship. It's just subtle ways. It's a non-biblical view of marriage that can shape our thinking and it can affect others, affect our children in a negative way. So do be real cautious about that. Outside of your relationship with God, the husband-wife relationship must be viewed as the priority relationship in your family. Number four, since marriage was the priority relationship, all others must be subject to it. They must be subject to it. You must protect your marriage. Your children are not on an equal status with you. Parents need to assume their God-given role and be the head of the family doing the leading. You need to show that and 
let that be sown. You know what, kids? We love you a lot, but you know what? You're going to be subject to this relationship because we need to be mom and dad working this together because if we don't have it right, your security is built on that. So the others have to just take a second base. Obviously, God is our first priority. Our spouse should be our second. A vehicle that we use for this is what we call couch time. Those who are in our parenting class, hopefully you're still doing this. But the process is when I get home from work, rather than going and sitting, reading the paper, ripping the mail open, sitting in front of the TV, I just decided to take 10 minutes to sit down with my wife. Just spend 10 minutes. She's been just buried under kids and clothes and all this other stuff for the whole day. So I just would spend 10 minutes with her uninterrupted in front of the kids. The first time we tried it, the kids wanted to get in there, wanted to talk. Even the dog always wants to get in, hates us doing this. Put her nose in. I want to be here. No, I'm not petting you, dog. This is a priority time for mom and dad to spend together. We demonstrated that in front of the kids. Unless there was blood coming out, we didn't want to hear it. Or, you know, some safety issue or something's going on. Just kids, you deal with it. What we found was our kids went and did the same thing themselves. Oh, this is mommy and daddy's time. Let's go have our time. And they did. What it did, it showed that, you know what, mom, you've been dealing with these kids for hours and hours on end. You need to talk to an adult. I'm here. Let me spend some time with you. Let me hear about your day. Let me tell you about mine. Well, the problem is that 10 minutes stretched into an hour, and you know, we would talk forever, so we had to learn to limit that, and, and you'll need to do that. But using that as a vehicle, the purpose isn't just so that my wife gets excited and I get to hear about her day. It's to demonstrate that this is a priority relationship and the others are subject to it. A warning for you, Malachi 2.15. There's a passage on divorce there. In the middle of this passage, talking about divorce, it says, speaking of God, he seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Guys and, and girls, all of you guys, your spouse you should not be dealing treacherously with. And the way that you view that, the way you deal with it, is going to have a great impact on your kids. God makes the connection for us on how important this is. William Farley, in his book, Gospel Parenting, Gospel-Centered Parenting, says, Marriage-centered, not child-centered parents usually exert the greatest influence on their children for Christ and his kingdom. This means that your weekend away with your spouse alone might influence your children more than all your teaching and disciplining combined. Your children are watching, and it gives them great joy and security to see their parents loving each other. It is so easy to fall into child-centered parenting. Oh, yes, my little child, whatever you want, you center the universe. Sometimes I would say that to my kids jokingly when they're asking for something because that's how absurd it is that you want me to stop everything and drop it just for you. They can't be the center. It has to be your spouse. has to be above them. The closer you get to God, the closer you can get to each other. The closer you get to each other, the closer you're going to get to your kids. That's what it's all about. Do you pray together as a couple regularly? Farley asked this question. He concluded, this is a great quote here, I have never received a positive response from a marriage in trouble. Wow, you want to protect your marriage? Pray together. This is a a way that you demonstrate this priority relationship. You know what? I'm going to take time to pray with my spouse every single night. I don't care how tired I am and... I'll fall asleep. Ask Kathy. I fall asleep in the middle of praying a lot of times because I'm just dead tired. But you know what? That's the way it should be. Having these four principles, it's kind of interesting looking back at Genesis chapter 2. God made Adam. Then he made Eve in chapter 3. We see Eve tempted by Satan. She's deceived. And the serpent then turns uh, to Adam. 
And think of Adam in this position, what he's dealing with in this context. Eve has partaken of this fruit. She's now going to die. She's going to decay. She's going to get old. Is he going to follow her that God gave her as a a helpmeet, as a complementer to him, or is he going to obey God? She's going to be separated from him. Would he trust God to fulfill his promises, or would he rely on his wife to fill, fill his needs? Adam chose to take the fruit, and he denied God. And that's where we have to watch and stop that that keeps going on in our lives. Hopefully now you see the value of protecting the priority relationship with your spouse. That's what I'm really trying to get you to see here. What happens when you make the child the center of attention to your family? It takes that priority away from the relationship with God intrinsically and the family structure God created. And then it trains idolatry into your children. They think that they're the center. This has gone quickly this evening. I know we've just scratched the surface. I pray that you've picked up a few reasons to come back tomorrow to join us uh, in the next two sessions. Uh, We've got a lot to cover, and I I hope that for Steve this kind of sets things up. We are excited. We've got a lot to share, and uh, thank you for coming. We uh, pray that the next couple hours that we have is going to help each one of you in your parenting relationship. Steve, you want to come up? Thank you, Grant, for uh, for sharing all that. It's uh, there's a part of me that wants to be completely finished raising children, and another part that wishes you could do it uh, forever and and keep on. Uh, I, I know that, uh, for example, when children begin the process of leaving home, we're in that stage right now. There is a there is a, a grief to that that goes along with it. But I always like to think, okay, that's better than having a son who's 44, still can't clean his room and lives at home, doesn't have a job. So uh, we, we, we look at everything in perspective. Um, tomorrow, uh, we're going to cover, and I'll be going first in the morning, we're going to go through a lot of Proverbs and get very practical. Grant has uh, laid a foundation for us. But there is one matter in particular that that our culture and our media and now, in increasingly uh, uh, exponential fashion, our government is stealing from us is the physical discipline of our children. That is a matter that is now, even in the church, is just taboo. No, that, that's abuse. I'm going to prove to you tomorrow that not only does Scripture show us that we are to physically discipline children, but why, and um, how to do it in a way that is, um, that's helpful and that's useful. I'll just give you a little hint I have, uh, through uh, previous experiences, I've had the opportunity to speak to somewhere in the vicinity of 6,000 children who have been physically or sexually abused. And I've asked hundreds of them this question, what do you think about spanking and do you think it's abuse? And I'll tell you the answer tomorrow, and it was 100% on one side of the issue children understand the issue. Um, So we're going to enjoy that. We're going to spend that time together. And then Grant is going to get back in our second session to um, really some uh, nitty-gritty details about understanding heart attitudes and and molding um, uh, the heart of your children. And it's very simple. You deal with them when they're young or you will deal with them when they're older. Those are your two choices, uh, one of the two. So uh, also... We did, I left my little sheet. What else do I need to do? Oh, yeah. We did a drawing uh, for all of you who uh, sent your little registration thingy. I hope there's not more than one of you because I cannot pronounce your last name. But is there a Tiffany here? 
Tiffany, come on up here. You now have the joy of a word-filled family. How do you say your last name? Oh, just like it sounds. I thought it was some fancy French pronunciation. So. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to give away another book, Parenting Through Proverbs, which is appropriate since I'll be doing that. You can check it and see if I was wrong. Uh, if I was wrong, then believe the book. Um, that's okay. Uh, and then Sunday morning, we're going to finish this off. And I'm going to speak specifically from Scripture about moms and dads. Um, we're kind of talking in general terms about parents in general, but I'm going to divide this out. We're going to talk the difference between dads and moms. Scripture is very clear. This is not a generic job. There are things dads are to do that moms shouldn't mess with. There are things that moms can do that dads need to just back off and let her do her thing. And we want to see what the differences from uh, that those are. And I think you'll enjoy that. Uh, Sunday morning is a time specifically taught priority is not training. It is worship. And so, of course, the gospel will be included in there. Uh, I appreciate you, Grant, for bringing up that the number one goal of raising our kids is to bring them to Christ. That is always the goal. Um, Well-behaved kids in hell do nobody any good. So we want to share the gospel with them. Thanks for coming out tonight. Let's pray, and then we'll enjoy some uh, dessert and, and tea outside. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for those who are here who uh, represent a great number of children just in the room next door to us. Every one of those children, Lord, someday will stand before holy God to give an account of himself or herself. I pray for these adults here in this room who are responsible to bring these little children the gospel of Christ, of course, we cannot save them. Only the Spirit of God blows where he wills. But, Lord, uh, we trust that through our faithfulness, uh, even in Proverbs it says that we discipline our children so that we might save their souls. And so I pray, Lord, that every child represented by parents here would someday stand before you and confess Christ Jesus as Lord. And that we here would rejoice in that and see the fruit of our labors and, of course, ultimately the fruit of the work of the Spirit of God. Be with each person tonight. Help us to enjoy our fellowship time. We pray you bring everyone back tomorrow. I know there are others that were not able to make it tonight. We pray you bring them uh, to us in the morning so that we might uh, train their hearts to train the hearts of their children. We thank you for the cross. Thank you for our salvation, for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from sin. And it's in his name that we pray and thank you with gratitude. Amen. We'll see you out there. Let's have some dessert.